I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, it was the summer of my eighth grade year, so I was going into ninth grade. And I spent quite a bit of time with a buddy of mine named Mark. He and I were playing on the same summer baseball team, and we would just switch whose houses we stayed at. Sometimes I'd be at his place, sometimes he'd be at my place. Well, this particular Wednesday, I was at his place, and he said to me, he said, hey, hey Matt, do you want to go to youth group tonight? I said, well, yeah, absolutely, let's go to youth group. I said, hey, tell me what it's like. And he said, oh, yeah, it's your typical worship service. Um, you know, we sing a bunch of songs, the youth pastor comes up, uh, he preaches a sermon, then we sing some more songs. I said, yeah, that sounds like a great time. And then he says to me, oh, and be sure you wear deodorant. I mean, I was going to anyway. I was a high school boy. But that was a red flag for me. I said, like, wear deodorant? What are you talking about? Wear deodorant? He's like, oh, you'll see. <laughs> All right, well, wear deodorant. So we show up at this youth group, and it's a big youth group, like two or 300 kids. And I don't know anybody there except Mark. Then Mark turns to me, and he says, hey, I'm going to go play drums, so I'll catch you afterwards. It's like, what? <laughs> okay, I'll catch you afterwards. So there I was, all alone in this sea of several hundred high schoolers that I didn't know. And when we got there, we sat right directly in the middle of everybody. Like, wow, this is kind of awkward. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Just sitting there by myself. And then it began. Now, Mark and I, I came to find out, came from very different backgrounds. I came from a conservative Baptist background. Mark came from a wildly charismatic background. That explains the deodorant comment earlier. <laughs> so, I mean, this was just raucous. This place just blew up. Songs were going. It was like a rock concert. And I'm sitting there thinking, where are the hymns? You know? <laughs> What's happening? It was loud. It, again, it was raucous. People were dancing and, and waving their arms around. Then the youth pastor comes up and he, he talks for just a minute in the middle of this worship set. And he calls the students to be open to what the Holy Spirit is doing. And the next thing I know, people just move out of the rows and into these big open sections on the side, except for me in the very middle. And then a couple of obvious other visitors who are completely confused. And then the students start speaking in tongues and flopping down on the ground and rolling around, what the youth pastor called being slain in the spirit. I'm thinking, what is going on here? And I was just completely out of my element. But, but that evening, I was exposed to the Holy Spirit, or so I thought, something that these people called an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And I purposed from that time on, like, I, I need to be familiar with what the Holy Spirit is doing, what is truth, what is not truth, what is real, what is not. What is his role today? We see the Spirit in the Old Testament, and certainly we see him active in the New Testament, particularly beginning in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, and throughout that book, the birth of the church. So after that weird encounter at the deodorant youth group, I figured, okay, I, I got to get a beat on this. Who is the Holy Spirit? And what's he doing? And the Holy Spirit is one of those subjects that our tradition doesn't really talk about a whole lot. We tend to focus on the Father. We tend to focus on the Son. 
that the Spirit, who is equally God, a member of that triune Godhead, the three in one, tends to get left out. But an understanding of the Spirit is absolutely vital to our Christian lives. And what's so cool is right here in the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God at work. And this has huge ramifications for our lives and how we understand the Spirit working in and through us going forward. So today, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 19. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. 1 Samuel chapter 19. Before we get there, let me just recap last week, which was 1 Samuel 18. David had just killed Goliath. And coming back from battle, the women, the girls... Everybody met the returning men, the returning soldiers, and they would sing these songs. They would compose these chants and welcome their men back. And the chant was, welcome home, men. Saul has slain his thousands. Yay, King Saul. David, the unknown shepherd boy, has slain his tens of thousands. And the king was not happy. So from that point on, the king purposed to get rid of David. And he tried a variety of means, and ultimately, in the end, it was unsuccessful. Saul realized that the Spirit of God was gone from him, and that it was on this other man, David. And he also realized the prophet Samuel's prophecy to him a few chapters earlier, where he said, God is going to rip the kingdom from you and give it to your neighbor, someone better than you. And that anonymous neighbor has now been identified. So the wheels are in motion. Saul's mind is churning. How can I get rid of this David character? And we're going to see him make eight attempts on David's life in this one chapter. So here we go. Let's pick it up. Verse 1, chapter 19. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Well, that's an introduction. This is interesting to me, and I just want to note the progression in Saul's feelings toward David. So initially in chapter 16, when he first met this Hebrew youth who was handsome, he loved him. And he called him into his service. A short time later, as we saw last week when the women were singing their chants... He hated him. And within just a few moments, he attempted to kill him. So it all begins in Saul's mind with a murderous thought in chapter 18. With this murderous thought, he secretly tries to kill David. Remember, he's got a spear in his hand. Who holds spears in Samuel? Who holds spears? Good guys or bad guys? Bad guys, Israel's enemies, and in particular, David's enemies. So he's in his palace, he's in his royal residence with this spear, and he tries to kill David secretly on two separate occasions. Well, that didn't work. So then this uh, progressed to more of a murderous plot that was in public view. He tried to have David killed through the natural course of battle. He put David in harm's way in battle against the Philistines to try to get him killed. And here's what's interesting. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba? David uses the same tactic later on in life when he has Bathsheba's husband killed. So Saul goes that route, and it doesn't work. So now he widens his circle, and he includes some of his servants and one of his daughters 
to try to get David killed, and that doesn't work either. So now very blatantly, very plainly, out in the open, chapter 19, verse 1, he just tells his guys, would somebody please kill David? Just kill the guy. He's a threat to my throne. He's a threat to my power. People are giving him the credit for my victories. I want him gone. Kill David. But Jonathan, those are big words right there. But Jonathan. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David. But Jonathan. Saul should have known that the least likely candidate to commit murder would be his son. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, these two guys, David and Jonathan, they united together in a covenant because they are like-minded Israelites who are passionate for God's law, for God's name, and for God's people. They are going to battle against the enemies of God for the glory of God. And now you want this guy? You actually expect that this guy is going to kill David? What's interesting to me is that uh, in chapter 20, verse 31, this is what Saul says to Jonathan. Chapter 20, verse 31, he says, hey, as long as that son of Jesse, and by the way, son of Jesse is a reference to David. Jesse is David's dad. This phrase, son of Jesse, becomes a swear word to Saul. He won't even say David's name anymore. He says, that son of Jesse. That son of Jesse, as long as he lives on this earth, he's talking to Jonathan now, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now, send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. This is Saul talking to Jonathan. So this is the approach that he uses. He says, hey, as long as this son of Jesse is alive, you're never going to get your kingdom. Don't you see, Jonathan, that this anonymous neighbor who's better than me, who's going to try to take my kingdom, is David, your best buddy. As long as he's around, you don't get the kingdom. So kill him. Back to our chapter, chapter 19. But Jonathan, but Jonathan, remember back to chapter 14, Jonathan is used to his dad making rash vows. Remember back to chapter 14, if you missed that week with us, here's what happened. Saul was going to war against the Philistines and he made this rash vow. He said, nobody can eat anything until we have wiped out the Philistines. So we're going to fight for several days with no food? Hey, Saul, what's that going to do to your soldiers' energy levels? Good idea or bad idea? Terrible idea. You need food while you're fighting. It's like playing sports or running or whatever. You need that stamina. You need food to give you energy. So Jonathan says, my father has troubled the land. My father has brought trouble on us. How much greater could our victory have been if we would just have been allowed to eat? And then, he doesn't know about his dad's rash vow, and he eats something. And then the people have to come to Jonathan's rescue. Do you remember that? Saul says, my own son broke my vow. He's got to die. And Saul's generals are like, are you kidding me? We had this victory today because he solo attacked an entire Philistine garrison. And now you want the crown prince to die? What's wrong with you? He's not going to die. So Saul's soldiers had to save Saul's son. So now here's Jonathan. 
familiar with his dad's rash vows and his lack of logic and common sense coming to the aid of a fellow warrior. That's what he says to him. But Jonathan, so here's Jonathan intervening on David's behalf. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David. So he warns him, verse 2, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you, David. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you, and I'll tell you what I find out. All right. So in Saul's mind, you've got public enemy number one, David, and the closest person to Saul, the crowned prince, Jonathan. Jonathan is conspiring to keep public enemy number one alive. In that passage we just read in chapter 20, that's what Saul is lashing out at Jonathan about later on. How could you betray me? You're my own son. But Jonathan recognizes the sinfulness of his father's actions. So in a way, he's actually protecting his dad from making an egregious sin. David has done nothing worthy of capital punishment. So if Saul kills David, an innocent man, Saul needs to be put to death according to the law. The king is not above the law. So not only is Jonathan protecting his friend, but he's also protecting his dad. Take a look at what he says in verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father, and he said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not done wrong to you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine, a reference to Goliath. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel. Notice he doesn't say, you, Dad, won a great victory. He doesn't say, David won a great victory. He's got to kind of toe that you know, middle ground. He says, Yahweh, our God, the Lord won a great victory. And you saw it, and you were glad. Remember, Dad, you didn't want to go fight him. None of your soldiers wanted to go fight him. So David fought him, and he won, and you were happy. Why, then, would you do wrong to an innocent man like David? By killing him for no reason. Jonathan, stop making sense. Just let me be angry and kill this guy. So he's absolutely right. He says, Dad, not only is this a heinous offense to God, but it makes no military sense. This guy's defeated your enemies. Why in the world would you want him dead? Verse 6. Saul listened to Jonathan. He doesn't listen to many people. Occasionally, he'll listen to one of his slaves, but he will listen to Jonathan. Saul listened to Jonathan, and he took this oath. Careful, careful when you take oaths. As surely as Yahweh lives, David will not be put to death. Okay, Saul, here's what you just did. You invoked the name of the most powerful being in the universe to stand as a perpetual witness that you will never harm David. That's a big deal, because in just a minute, you're going to try to kill him again. You've made this oath with God, 
and now you've broken it, showing your complete spiritual defection. Saul, how do you think that's going to play out for you? The text says in verse 7 that Jonathan calls David, and he told him the whole conversation that he had with his dad, and then he brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. So what that means is not only was he willing to serve as a military commander, but he was also in the royal court. He was still going to play the harp whenever that troubling spirit came on Saul. So for the time being, it appears that everything is all right. And David was rescued by the crown prince. The one person who probably had the most to gain from David's death. And this man spared David's life. It's an amazing testimony to Jonathan's faithfulness to God and faithfulness to the covenant that he made with his friend, David. All right, so here we go. Verse 9, but an evil spirit from the Lord, and we talked about this evil spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit used to rest upon Saul. And what what that phraseology means in the Bible is that the Holy Spirit temporarily was over Saul and empowered him for service. But Saul openly made himself an enemy of God by blatantly rejecting the revealed word of God, and consequently the Holy Spirit left him and went to David. So what was replaced by that Holy Spirit was this troubling spirit. This troubling spirit would come on Saul and it would torment him, probably in the form of of some sort of mental anguish. So here comes this troubling spirit. And here's Saul sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. Who has spears in 1 Samuel? Bad guys. Okay, clearly this guy is off his rocker. Think about this. Here you have Israel's king armed for battle while sitting peacefully in the most secure house in the entire country. You can laugh a little. That's weird. This guy's losing it. You couldn't be any safer, and here he is, armed for battle, sitting on his throne. Not to worry, David, because Saul made a covenant with the Lord, right? Right? While David was playing the lyre, trying to soothe Saul, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night, David made good his escape. This just, this just goes to show Saul's complete spiritual deterioration. He just gets done making a covenant with God that he would not harm David. And in this fit of rage, he once again attempts to take David's life. So again, Saul is going to try to kill David 16 times throughout the course of 1 Samuel. And in this chapter alone, we're going to see eight of those. So here we go. Verse 11. Saul sent men to David's house, because now David's escaped and he wants David dead. So Saul sends his men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him. So the king's daughter, the princess, is aware of her father's plot. So she warns David. She said this, if you don't run for your life tonight... Tomorrow, you will be killed. My dad's guys are waiting. They're going to wake up. They're going to come into our house, the royal residence, and they're going to kill you. 
We saw Jonathan help out David. And now we're seeing McCall, another one of Saul's kids, help out David. Verse 12. So McCall actually helps him escape. She lets David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Verse 13. Then McCall took an idol. Wait, what? Did that catch you off guard? McCall took an idol? Why do you have an idol? You worship Yahweh. What this shows us is that she was as much of a spiritual rebel as her dad. We're going to see that this idol fooled the guards. So this must have been a life-size, human-size idol. It's a word um, uh, in Hebrew that talks about these giant figurines, and they were often used in ancestor worship. So she had this giant idol. And remember, previous chapter, last week, Saul wanted David to marry McCall, and he said this in chapter 18, because perhaps she can be a stumbling block to him. So here's what he meant by that. I know my daughter worships idols, and I know Yahweh forbids us to worship idols. So if she marries David, maybe she can influence David to also worship idols. And if David worships idols, David will also be an enemy of God, and God will take him out too. Saul's trying to use every means available, every scheme that he can think of to get rid of David, even trying to influence God himself. Verse 13, then McCall took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. That's funny. Why does she have goat's hair? How do you just have goat's hair? Right? You ever read the Bible and you come across stuff like that? You're like, what? You just have goat's hair laying around? So she takes this idol, and she makes it look like David. Verse 14, when Saul sent the men to capture David to the following morning, McCall says, he's ill. Okay, guys, the princess is talking. Let's just get out of the house. Her man's sick. Let's just leave her alone. The princess had power and authority just like the king did. And these soldiers were unwilling to break protocol and force themselves by the princess to go after David. She's a powerful woman. So she says, my husband's ill, go away. Verse 15. Then Saul sent the men back to see David, and he told them, just bring him up to me on his bed so that I can kill him. They're not even trying to hide the fact that they're just going to openly murder David. Bring the sick guy to me on his sick bed, and I'll just kill him with my spear. But when the men entered, they went in to get David, and there was the idol in the bed and at the head with some goat's hair. <laughs> goat's hair. So they've been fooled. They've been tricked. So here's Saul. He's like, bring me the princess. I need to know what's going on here. So now McCall has got to give an accounting for what she did. Saul wants to know, why did you take part in this deception? Verse 17, he says to McCall, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away? And now he's escaped. Why would you? Do? I'm trying to kill this guy. I know he's your husband, but I made you guys marry so that I could eventually kill him. Why'd you let my enemy get away? McCall told him, Wow, he said to me, Let me get away. Why should I kill you? So, how does the daughter of Saul answer? Like Saul would, with a lie. She just openly lies to her dad. 
But this was actually very convenient for Saul, and here's why. Previously, he had no reason to put David to death. He was going to be guilty of killing an innocent man. But, McCall said that he threatened her. Okay, all right. So now David has threatened the princess, a member of the royal family. He's threatened to kill her. Now he's guilty, and now I can put him to death. You didn't think that one through, McCall. So now you've just condemned your husband. This was a convenient lie for McCall, but now an even more convenient lie for Saul. Verse 18. When da- and this is so cool. This is where we start to see the spirit working here. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to the prophet Samuel at Ramah. And he told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel left that spot and they went to Naoth and stayed there. So this place, Naoth, we encounter it a couple of times in the text. It's basically uh, a series of bunkers or houses that were specifically set aside for the prophets. This was like the school of the prophets. If you were a prophet of God, this is the spot that you went to. So they flee to the prophet housing section and they hide there. Well, it's only a short matter of time until the spies report back to Saul. Verse 19, word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So Saul sends men to capture him. I love this part of the text. Start underlining. This is so great. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. That's so cool. <laughs> we talked about this word prophesy, and it can mean three different things. It can mean actual prophecy, where you're speaking the words of God. It can also mean false prophets attempting to do that, but their words are not true. And it can also mean raving like a lunatic. And usually when Saul is prophesying, he's raving like a lunatic. But in this case, this is actually influenced by the Spirit of God. So now you have the Holy Spirit intervening in Saul's murder attempt and causing his men to proclaim the truth of the Lord. So before they could actually search out David and either arrest him or kill him, they're captured by God's Spirit. How cool is that? Someone's got to say amen. Come on. This same Holy Spirit of God that previously had anointed David for kingship is now intervening and he's protecting him against the murderous intents of Saul. Did you catch that? The same spirit that anointed David is now protecting David. Let's go on. Here's what happens. Verse 21. Saul was told about it, so he sends round two. And what happened to them? They also prophesied. Well, that's annoying. Stop making my soldiers prophesy. I know, I'm going to do it a third time. This will surely get them. Saul sent men a third time. And they also prophesied. So because of the Spirit's intervention, nobody could get to David. 
they went out under the influence of Saul, and when they arrived, they were taken over by the influence of God's Spirit. God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that dwells in us, is taking over the situation in order to bring about his desired will. Now, what happens next is kind of hard to see in English, but here's what's going on in Hebrew. We see this three times. There's this verb that says, he himself, or even he, or he too. And the point there is a point of emphasis, because Saul himself is going to get into the action here. And what the text is saying is that this even happened to Saul. Even Saul went. Even Saul was taken over. And it's just meant to, to separate the things here. It just blows your mind that here goes the most powerful man in the land, the king. And even he is going to fall under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Watch what happens here. Verse 22. Finally, he himself, here's that first, that first instance, even Saul left for Ramah. And he went to the great sister in this well at a place called Siku. And he's asking the people there, hey, where are Samuel and David? Well, everybody's terrified of the king. They're not going to withhold information. So they tell him. Uh, they're over in Naoth at Ramah. They're at the prophet's apartments over there. Verse 23. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but... Previously, we saw, but Jonathan, where Jonathan intervened to save David. Here we see, but the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is intervening to save David. But the Spirit of God came even on him, even on wicked King, uh, King Saul. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. And here's the cool part. Previously, the soldiers didn't start prophesying until they got to the prophet apartments and came in contact with those guys. Saul is a long way off, and the Spirit gets him all the way down the road. He doesn't even come into the presence of the prophets yet. The Spirit just comes on him while he's walking. Verse 24. He stripped off his garments, and he too, even he, even Saul, he stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He laid naked all that day and all that night. Shameful, shameful thing in this part of the world at that time period, especially for a king. You never showed your body, your nakedness. Incredibly shameful. And this is why the people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Here's what's interesting about verse 24. He stripped off his garments. So Saul's loss of the regnal robes, the king's garments, the royal attire, in the presence of God's spirit is a powerful picture for us to see. It's a powerful image. And it reminds us of Samuel's judgment in chapter 15. The judgment was this. We talked about it earlier. God's going to take the kingdom from you and give it to somebody better than you, to your neighbor. Saul was rejected as king, so as he comes into the presence of God, God's spirit, he would not be permitted to wear the garments by which he is identified as king. Isn't that cool? I mean, not for him, that's embarrassing, but for us, for the story, God has rejected you from being king, so take off your royal robes. You cannot come into, into to God's presence wearing your royal robes. You are not the king. So he strips him off and he starts prophesying naked. Here's also what's cool about Saul prophesying in Samuel's presence. Why did Saul lose the kingdom? 
because he openly, blatantly rejected the revealed word of God from Samuel. So here he is, one who has rejected the word of God, being forcibly controlled by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the word of God in the very presence of the man whose word he previously rejected. You see the irony here? This is a masterfully told story. Saul is under the complete influence of the unstoppable spirit, and there's absolutely nothing he can do about it. He will proclaim God's word. We see this statement again to close out this chapter. This is why the people say, is Saul also among the prophets? And when we saw that earlier, several weeks ago, we saw that it meant one of two things. Real prophets were descended from real prophets. So when Saul was seen prophesying, one of two things had to be true. Either he was an illegitimate child, because his dad wasn't a prophet, so he was like the illegitimate son of prophet, or the prophets that he's with aren't real prophets. So they they came up with this saying, and it was meant to cast shame on Saul. We know that neither of those two things are true. What this phrase means here is it's just a reminder to the people that, man, look at Saul. He's acting so uncharacteristically. Is Saul also a prophet? He's a raving maniac king. Is he also a prophet? Clearly the answer is no, but he's being forcibly controlled by the Spirit of God to make known the words of God. It was funny, I was talking uh, with my buddy Steve Emhoff, he's a pastor in Puyallup, you guys, you guys know him here, some of you know him, and we were talking about chapter 19, he said, hey, you know, hey, where are you stopping? I said, well, it's not really a great stopping point, I mean, you have chapters 19, 20, and 21, I mean, it's all about Saul trying to kill David, and this is messed up stuff. You know, we're working through how to apply this text. Um, and he says, hey, just do a dramatic reinterpretation of chapter 19. I'm like, no. No, that's not going to work with me raving like a lunatic taking my clothes off. That's not an option. <laughs> but his, he was just like, yeah, I, I don't know what to do with this text. I don't know, man. Let's, let's get together and, and hash it out. But just in talking with my friend and in praying through this text, it's so clear to me now, we're talking about the unstoppable spirit. And I thought, how fitting for an end to our time together. I know this last year and a half has been a roller coaster for you all. I know it has been for my family for the last six months. We love you guys. We're trying to discern what the Lord is doing here, what the Lord is doing in our lives. And I know it's been tough. But just being able to step back and attempt to discern what the Spirit of God is trying to accomplish is a cool thing. And just spending some time with the elders, you know, we've been able to do that and just see how God is moving and working behind the scenes But at the same time, we don't know exactly what he's doing. In fact, in our our Easter time together, we saw this in in John when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. He was talking about the Holy Spirit and how he works and moves and operates. He said, "You, you can't really see exactly how it's all fitting together, but you know it's happening. And he used the illustration of the wind. He said, it's kind of like the wind. You see the wind blowing, right? Well, no, I see the effects of the wind blowing, but I don't actually see the wind, and I don't know where the wind comes from. But I can see movement. I can see things happening. Same thing, Jesus says, with the Holy Spirit. We know that God is at work. We know that things are happening. We just don't know exactly where they're coming from necessarily or how they're going to end up. But here's what this text 
gives us confidence about. This is where the text assures us this morning. The unstoppable spirit is active. Even though we can't necessarily discern what he's doing or how he's going about it, he is active and he is working to accomplish his purposes for God's ultimate glory and for his church's ultimate good. We don't serve an inactive God. As we read about in John chapter 14 earlier this morning, Jesus had to leave so that the Spirit could come. And now that the Spirit is here, he is accomplishing the will of the Father. I love you guys. It's just been a blast to be here for the last five or six months. Uh, This is the best group of people that I have ever preached to. You guys are so interactive. You're so encouraging. You've just been a blessing to my family. In fact, I came in this morning, and the Galais made a little gift for my daughters up here. You guys took care of my mom when she was in the hospital. You blessed us as a family. I just want to say thank you, and I love you. I'm not sure exactly what the Lord has uh, for us or for you, but you guys were a big part of it. Um, Man, come on. Don't cry. (laughs) You guys were a big part of our lives, and I'm really grateful for you. We're not going to cease to pray for you. We're definitely not going to forget you. Uh, so thank you for letting us be a part of your life for the last six months. And I know the Spirit's working. I know the Spirit's active. And I'm excited to see what he accomplishes among you. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you for the 1BC family, my brothers and sisters. God, I thank you too for the encouragement that you can bring us from text, even in the Old Testament. God, you gave us your Holy Spirit the great power and influencer in our world and in your church. And God, we see that he is working, even in situations where uh, they're desperate. I mean, there's murder in the air, and still your spirit is working to preserve your people. God, thank you for the gift and ministry of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would sense that in our lives, and I pray that this body especially would sense that as you are working in and among them. God, we pray for the man and the family that you are bringing to this place. I pray for the people here, that they would be receptive to that man, that they would welcome him as they have welcomed my family. And I pray for that man and his family, that they would be empowered to do the work of ministry here at 1BC and in Ferndale. God, I pray for your blessings on this body. I thank you for them. I ask that they would be encouraged, even as they have encouraged us. We worship you this morning and give you all the glory and praise. In your son's powerful name we pray, by the Spirit. Amen.